the microphone will work. Um, I keep trying different mics, so we're back to the old one today. I, may, I have another one that came today in the mail but did not have time to look at before we started, but that's not your problem so much as mine. Um, what is kind of exciting, and I guess is your problem now, is that I have received the, the first copies of my book, Without Flesh, from Concordia Publishing House. Yay, yeah. Um, it is, uh, uh, I got 10 of them, and I believe they're not out yet to buy, but you can still pre-order. So by the 14th, they should start shipping from places like Amazon and whatnot if you ordered through them. Um, I will have five of these available for sale at the church shop this coming Sunday, but I'm going to charge you more than they're worth, so you should buy on Amazon or at cph.org. But they will be up there, um, and you can look through it tonight if you like. It's not quite like Broken. If you're familiar with Broken, there were like pictures all the way through it. It's not quite like that, but there's some cool kind of, you know, doodly stuff everywhere um, and whatnot. And I'll probably talk more about that for the whole church's sake at some point, like why I wrote it, what it's for, how it's good for us right now, and, and those kinds of things. But tonight I want to keep our conversation going on, on uh, knowing God. And I feel like last week, kind of toward the end of class, you started to pepper up a little bit more um, and say things. And I, I really want to work on that as a group. Um, just the freedom to do that or to treat this as if not as a classroom, but as if we're just talking about truth together. And I get it. I'm in a teacher position and you're at a table, you know, kind of defended and yet somehow submitted to me, right? Uh, as, it's really funny how that works. Like the desk is like your defense mechanism. The teacher can't get to you. But at the same time, it's a demonstration. They're standing, you're sitting. It's a demonstration that they're like in a power situation. That can make it very difficult to ask a question or challenge or anything like that, just socially speaking. Uh, you wouldn't do that in, say, a movie theater, right? Or even necessarily in the sanctuary. But what I envision for us in this space on Wednesday nights, however it metamorphosizes over the next however long, and ideally is it's a place where we're drawing in people who are inquiring and curious about the faith, is that it's a place where you're not afraid to just say what you believe, even if it's wrong, and then test that together against the scriptures. Uh, the more that we are testing our own words against what scripture says, uh, the more truth we will speak. And the more truth we actually speak, the more truth we're going to live. The more truth that we live, the more people are going to want to know what makes us different from the rest of the, rest of the world. Um, so in that regard, uh, please interrupt me. Like I have a light set of goals, but I am not on any particular pace. Uh, we, can, we can pause and tangent and do whatever is necessary um, for you to understand what I'm talking about. Or, this is maybe the worst way to say it, for you to be able to, with confidence, confess what you believe according to Scripture. That's my goal. Go ahead, Glenn. I think if you want to shout out, that's fine. I guess some of the children's maybe should raise their hands, but maybe not. Why don't we see? I'll give a, I'll give a, a what do you call that, a wide open pass? Hmm? No holds barred to talking until I bar your holds because you can't, can't do it. But yeah, just, just interrupt me, you know. Um, the goal would, of course, be to, to dialogue and not yell, right, that kind of thing. And if you notice you're saying something, the same person is to someone else, maybe say their name and defer to them, whoever they might be, so they can just go. Because um, that's the biggest problem is if five kids talk at once. You have this happen at home. No one here probably has five kids doing it at home. Not quite. I do. You have three or two, they talk all at once, and you're like, I didn't hear anybody. 
I don't even know. Go ahead, Emma. Stop pointing fingers. Am I pointing fingers? <laughs> You're pointing finger. <laughs> I'm pointing a finger here. Stop pointing your finger. Am I doing that a lot? No, I mean like they're not the only ones that would interrupt you. Oh, I see. I guess she wants to join in. Okay. <laughs> Great. But you raised your hand. You don't you don't have to. You you can point your finger at me and challenge and think. What's up, Josie? Um, so, knowing God, tangent, I watched the Super Bowl at someone's house, some of you were there, and one of the things that was talked about during that game, which, by the way, I thought there was no way the Chiefs were going to win, I was, I was pulling for the Chiefs simply because my wife was pulling for the 49ers and I wanted a chance to rub it in, and instead she rubbed it in after three quarters as we're driving away, and I had given up, and it was only the next day I realized... You guys got whooped, honey. Just <laughs> destroyed. It was great. It wasn't even just a comeback. It was like a trouncing comeback. It was, that was something. So, but there was a conversation that happened about the commercials. Ugh. Halftime show. Ugh. There's, there's a lot there. The, the conversation that connects to this is, I think it was Jennifer pointed out that you don't hear in the commercials the word Super Bowl. You only hear the phrase, the big game. And the reason for that is because whoever owns it, NFL, has copyrighted out of the ability of the, the marketers the word Super Bowl. They, they have a copyright on that word. You can buy the time on the station, but you cannot use the word Super Bowl. When you do it, you have to call it something else. And the big game has become kind of the go-to. So if you listen to it carefully, every commercial, big game, big game. They just keep saying over and over, big game, big game. Now, we can get into a debate about why this may or may not be good for your business to stop people from using your name. I think that's a bad idea myself. But what is most interesting is the effects of that. So then I was somewhere else away from the Super Bowl. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Could have been on, on Monday, though. And somebody here, a member, I don't remember who, just said out loud, I was watching the big game. And it's like, wait a minute. Look at that. So they think they're protecting their company and its name by not letting people use it. And so people use something else. And what happens? The actual word for describing the thing becomes what people are using, not what you're trying to sell them or have them believe or, or hold on to. Right? So what does that have to do with this? I am very gradually beginning to say knowing God as a phrase every time I would otherwise say the word theology. In sermons, in Bible study, I don't always catch myself, but I'm trying. I'm trying to catch myself to use this word instead of the word theology. Not because I want to necessarily get rid of theology or drive it away, but because I do want people to know the meaning of the word. And that is all the word theology means. Knowing God. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, is there good theology? Is there bad theology? Can you know a false God versus a true God? Yes, absolutely. But for our sake... This class, to some extent, is trying to, to ask us, how can we best learn to talk about what we believe without letting go of any of the, the doctrine of it at all, um, but in a way that other people can hear it and begin to pick it up again. Um, if you go and sit down and try to have a conversation with Joe Schmo about theology, 
he's going to get really nervous and think he needs a, like some sort of high-end degree and he's got to study grammar or maybe just be a philosophy nerd. He probably doesn't even think that. He just thinks whoever thinks that's interesting is a nerd and not my kind of nerd. If you go and you talk to Joe Schmo about knowing who God is, they won't have any of that connection to the word theology or those ideas that I just talked about that theology might draw up. They're going to think about what they think God is. And they're going to say either, I don't believe there is a God. That would be a form of knowing God or denying his knowledge. Um, uh, or they're going to really talk about what they think. And it's amazing how many people do think things about God. You would think in a secular age like ours that people would not, uh, you would think there would be more atheists and like hardcore agnostic, I don't really care people out there, given how much that's sort of the news or the, the pop culture presentation, like it's not cool to be, be religious or spiritual. Um, of course, that spiritual side is making a comeback. But I think you would be surprised how many people that you just pass all over the place have some idea about God. They, they're not atheists. They're not hardcore evolutionists. They believe in evolution. They've never studied it. They don't care. Uh, but, but they do believe that there's a God who is present somewhere in their life and in their world that they somehow have an engagement with. And they might have that God speak to them through signs and wonders or through their cat or through their grandpa. I mean, I've run into all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but it's out there. And if you can engage that part of that person with words, that's the path to bringing them to know who the true God is as opposed to the false God. Whereas if you're just going to say, I'm going to talk about theology and you've got a false theology. I mean, you haven't just shut the conversation off. Um, you're not speaking the same language. You're not speaking the same language. Yeah. Oh, you raised his hand, though. So when I first got out of college, I worked with a bunch of, like, a crew of guys that were, maybe they graduated from high school, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Right. Laborers, they right. could fix things, they could dig holes. And this one guy told me that, you know, as we're on these big tree planting jobs, planting thousands a day, he said he imagined that every tree he planted was like he was getting his sin forgiven. Huh, huh, huh. Like, yeah. Where, where did you come over? Yeah, that? But, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, like, just from their lifestyle and from knowing what they did and who they were, they're not going to church every Sunday. No, no. Their parents probably didn't. You know, maybe grandma did, but that was it. So somehow along the line, he's picked up this. He picked up the word sin from somewhere. From somewhere. And he's got the concept of atonement down, although he wouldn't have said that. But yeah, that's what he's but doing. It's, but it's, you know, whatever. Payment. Yeah, whatever he learned from somewhere deep, deep. Yeah. Came up with this religion, right? Well, yeah. I think most religions come up with some concept of evil, and they generally will lean into some form of atonement, paying for the evil in some way. That's why you have idol worship of old with a big statue, and they'll sacrifice some stuff and burn it up and all that kind of thing. They're trying to pay for it. Um, the thing is, though, when they talk even with these terms, they probably aren't meaning what we mean a lot of the time. Uh, they're meaning different things. Perhaps here they're meaning one really big thing they did that they feel bad about, maybe two. Um, and then the atonement side of it is like, how do I say this? Um, it's such a demonstration of how fallen we are. So like, I figure out somehow, just as I grew up among wolves, that I'm a bad human wolf because I just need to atone for the bad I do. Like, I figured that out. doesn't matter what I did. But I'm, I'm not getting influenced by other humans, right? I'm just living in the wilderness. 
I would still at some point figure out that the bad that I do needs to be paid for. And then I would try to make up something to pay for it. And I would hope, I would hope that God accepts it. Whoever God is, God accepts it. Uh, that is to say, I'm going to pretend to talk for God and kind of assume for the sake of not being afraid anymore, I'll convince myself that he's taking what I'm doing and saying, that's good enough. I'm so glad for those trees. You know, you were going to go burn for eternity. And I wasn't sure with the first 300 trees, but at 305, you're in, right? Like, what proof, what evidence, what reason do you have for thinking you, should you find yourself to be evil, could atone for, could pay for that evil in any way, shape, or form, most of all just by making it up? Again, if you're evil and you decide to be good, what kind of good would you be, kind of by nature? Bad. Yeah, bad evil, or bad good, bad good, yeah? You would not, you would be outwardly good with evil intent. Huh? That's, that's all of us, by nature, that's all of us in false religion. Um, but it also demonstrates, Mike, to, I mean, to the point, he believed theology, he knew God. Theology is his problem and, again, our solution. But how do we get there? Also notice his hope is not like our hope at all. Our hope is founded on certainty. His hope is founded on wishful thinking. Uh, or uh, His hope is a maybe. Our hope is a soon. And there's a big difference there. Um, talk about that stuff later. Um, so one of the things I want to push us into tonight is a little more of trying to apply this wrestling with how we talk, translating what we believe into words we understand. And that can be different, by the way. It doesn't have to be formalized. We have formalized language, and Lutheran pastors are always trying to teach it to you, but it's almost like we have to teach you how to do a whole other school of something so that you can understand a very basic thing. And I would rather teach you what that very basic thing is in the most reasonable, shareable words possible, and then, insofar as you desire to know the official wording, you know, learn that as well. Uh, so that's what I want to push on a little more tonight, um, I'll come back to that in a moment, but I do want to always drive us into Proverbs a little bit. Um, and on that, I don't know, there's a couple books that would fit this. Um, is it two S's? I think it is. Uh, I mean, the Psalms, all these writings, they're called the writings, Song of Songs. This one I'm not as, you know, going to push as much, but it's interesting to me, as Lutherans particularly, and as Missouri Synod Lutherans, as Scripture alone, died in the wool, world traditional, we're never going to change Missouri Synod Lutherans, how little we know about these three books. You probably know the Psalms better than the other two, which is good, I suppose. Um, they do contain prophecy, and the Proverbs don't really contain prophecy, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but these are three of the major books of the Old Testament that can immediately, immediately apply to your life. If we go and we study Joshua and how he enters the promised land, there's all sorts of truth there about who God is, what he did in history, uh, how you can see him working the way he's going to work toward the way he works in Christ, and how that flips over in the new covenant to you. You can see that. But in terms of like information that I can read today and today makes a difference in my life in the world, the, the wisdom literature here is, is stunningly valuable. And for 
Missouri Synod of Lutherans particularly, amazingly ignored. Um, I don't know. I mean, I knew the book was there because I think my mom had quoted to me, um, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is, is old, he will not depart from it. So she quoted a proverb to me. I'm not sure she ever taught me any other proverbs, right? Um, that's weird, especially if you're going to quote the proverb to say how I should be trained to know the truth and then never give me the rest of them, right? And I'm not trying to condemn my mother here. It's just the ignorance of it. We just don't know. Um, I don't know enough. I've been through it one and a half times. It's a tough book, but it's so amazingly good. True, yeah. Um, Ecclesiastes may turn up like once. Uh, time to kill, a time to die. Um, certainly is recommended as a funeral text. Uh, and Proverbs, there may be something on wisdom as a person that shows up once in the three year, maybe twice. But you're right, they're not part of our, our regular worship life, which I don't know that Proverbs belongs in the worship life of the church, but in terms of daily reading, if you want to read anything every day from the Bible, start with one proverb a day. I mean, really, uh, it, it would be great for you. So that's, that's my pitch for Proverbs. I don't expect you necessarily to go do all of that, and so I'm trying to do a little bit here, right? So we already went through this right at the start, but this one will always be up here. Um, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, right? Um, you're dumb, God's not. You're a creature, God's the creator. Uh, there is truth to be had, but you're not the source of it. And so the first thing to do then is look for the source. Uh, look for the source. Um, and we looked at this one last time. I just wanted to review it because it is the most famous, I think, of all individual Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, this would be Jesus, right? Trusting in Jesus is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the ultimate folly, the ultimate dumb, is to reject any kind of instruction, to assume you already know everything, and then especially to reject the instruction that Jesus himself would give, um, the truth of God's word. So again, we looked at that last week. What I want to um, look at this week is the verses right before it, um, verses 5 and 6. And again, I want to emphasize that there are two um, applications, that's a big word, I guess. Uh, it's funny, if I say application referring to a computer, it makes sense, right? If I say it connected to a, like, a sticker or a, oh, what are those called, a patch, kind of makes sense. But I'm talking about here how you would use this. Peter, you want to go ahead and go and I'll, I'll remember this. What you got? Uh -huh. and, and before they said what they mean, they, I mean, yeah, they say we should fear and love God. Uh-huh. That was the catechism of Dr. Luther. That is his explanation of the Ten Commandments, and he summarizes all faith as both fear and love of God. Yep, and that would lead to trust. We could go off for a bit on what it means to fear God, because... Uh, it's a tough word. Again, in English, it, it doesn't quite mean what I think the Hebrew means. Um, I was putting, um, you are making me tangent here, Peter. Uh, I was preparing the lectionary for the next couple of weeks and in prepping the proper preface, this is the part that I sing during the Lord's Supper where like I say it is meat, right, and salutary, and then I end with angels and archangels. 
The thing that changes every week between that is called the proper preface, and it's a prayer that's supposed to be connected to the season of the year. Um, I've been doing a different one every week connected to the readings of the day. And somehow at the end of, I think the one in, is in three weeks, um, like the last word I used, I wanted to talk about the, the essence of God or the seeing of God and, and, and how impossible it is for us to understand God. It was not in the proper preface, so you're not going to see it there. I know where it is now. It doesn't matter. I was trying to talk about the unimaginable, omnipotent, unbelievability, ununderstandability of the Almighty God in his triune nature. And the word that I wanted to use was marvelous. He's marvelous. But think about this word and how, how, how much it's changed. So to be marvelous normally just means to be good now, right? If I say, that's marvelous, I just mean, that's really good. But the word comes from the verb to marvel. If you marvel at something, you're stunned by it. It's, it's overwhelming. It's more than you can, can fathom. You, you, you just are dumbstruck, right? And you know the, the softening of our language, I don't know how all this has happened. I know language decays. But you know, God, the triune God, is marvelous. Uh, He's not just um, awesome. That's gotten twisted. Um, but that's closer to the fear side of this too, right? Uh, you, you, would, you can only stand without words before the triune deity because you can't fathom the triune deity, right? And everyone's always trying to. Every class about it, well, how do I understand? And the point is you can't. You can't. All right, so cool tangent, Peter. Thank you. Um, wisdom. Every single time the Proverbs mentions wisdom, you have two things you can apply and should apply it to. And one of them has almost nothing to do with Christianity, and the other one has everything to do with Christianity. So a person who's not a Christian can hear this phrase and get a lot out of it, because it's really, really good advice. And yet it also has a deeper Christian meaning that they won't get and won't benefit from. So I'm going to do both of those in that order. Okay, so a wise person should listen and he will increase learning so he will understand the thought-provoking words of the wise. A wise person should listen and he will increase learning so he will understand the thought-provoking words of the wise. Um, so forget Christianity, forget religion for a second. It's just straight up true. If you really know what you're doing, then you know the best thing you can do to get better at it is listen to somebody who's better at it than you. Straight up. Doesn't matter what it is in life. You want to get better at something? Learn to listen. Learn to listen to those who know. And then, when those who know say things, you'll be able to understand it too. And you'll be elevated in your conversation or even become a teacher yourself in one of those areas. So that's first. But then second, this word wisdom has to be connected to the word faith the way we would use it as Lutherans. So really... A believing in Jesus person should listen. Right? You believe in Jesus already? Good, listen, and you will increase in your faith in Jesus. Yeah? The words of wisdom, which are Christ's words, both law and gospel, only benefit you more and bring you back to a gaining of a deeper knowledge of it so that eventually, again, you'll be able to understand whatever anybody says about knowing God. If they say, I'm going to plant a tree, and God will forgive me, you'll be able to put that in a framework. And it doesn't have to be 
the exact verbatim framework that I would use, but it would be one that is orthodox because you have it with true understanding learned from the scriptures. Kind of put it another way, you may have heard this example before. It's kind of the sniff test thing. Um, you can get pretty good without trying as a, as a Lutheran of uh, kind of the heresy sniff test where you spend a lot of time hearing good teaching, hearing good preaching, and someone comes along and they say something and you don't know, you don't know why it's wrong at all, but something really bothered you about it. It's like, that just, just smells wrong. Something's got to be wrong about that. And uh, the example that kind of uh, helps with this a little bit is I was told once by someone who was trained at a bank that they were going to train him to figure out how to spot counterfeit bills. And he was excited because he wanted to see all the cool tools that were being used to make counterfeit bills and learn how to find the special details and really point them out and they could you know, be a party trick or something. And um, he was very disappointed then when for multiple hours, three, four, five hours of the first day of training, they didn't look at any counterfeit money at all. They didn't talk about any counterfeit money at all. They simply looked at real, brand new, crisp American dollar bills. And they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and he was going to bleed feeling dollar bills out of his eyes. And then they brought in another stack, brand new stack, and they said, find the counterfeit. And he didn't think he could, but as soon as he flipped through it, he immediately knew the difference and pulled it right out. So what happened there was his sniff test had been trained simply by action. Right? By being in the, in the context of truth, he'd learned to smell the falsehood. And that's, that's like step one, right? That's how you just survive. But if we want to impact other people, we want to be able to speak about their counterfeit. Yeah? So while I completely agree with the analogy with regard to defending the faith, defending yourself, knowing the difference, what I would like us to be as a congregation is those equipped to then call it out, say why it is, and you know, shifting the analogy to someone who's not a Christian, asking about the, tr the trees that you think are saving you, and asking about what is, try that one on, this would be really hard, but you're there, he says that, a little bit of forgiveness, you know, so what is it that's got your conscience so bothered that you would need to do this before God? I mean, try that on, right? See how that goes. He might open up, though. He might tell you. Because rather than try to talk about how he's just a pagan and he doesn't understand that trees don't save, you got to what he's really dealing with. His knowledge of God is, I need atonement. And so you're offering to be part of that journey with him. And that would give you the chance at some point to talk about where real payment does lie in Jesus on the cross, right? So anyhow... Our faith increases by listening and learning more to what has been said that gave us faith in the first place, and it leads to a confession, to an ability to engage the world with these thoughts um, or with these words. Yeah. Any thoughts about Proverbs before we go go forward? Yes. Mm-hmm. Assurance, yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I might be, my arrows might be out of order, but action and object. There's a bunch of complication in that question, but you're right that it's smushy. It's smushy like the word love. Um, and so my immediate answer that I think is less smushy, but still creates a problem sometimes, but it's the word trust. So what is faith? Faith is trust. Does that mean, is trust always good? No. Is faith always good? No. If I have faith in someone who's unfaithful, that's not good. It's just really bad. Huh? Uh, and so if I trust someone who's untrustworthy, that's not good. Uh, so faith is nothing else. It is trust. The question always becomes not, do you have faith, but what, in whom do you believe? Uh, and, and why? Uh, uh, what has been said to you by anyone that would cause you to believe? We all think the earth is round. We all believe it. Now, maybe you have gone out into space or run the equations yourself on a supercomputer, but by and large, my guess is none of us have actually experienced the full circulation, glob global nature of the earth. But we believe it. Right. How, do we do, how do we do that? Well, on faith. In God? No. Not on faith in God. On faith in men. Men who have studied it a lot and have told us we're pretty sure this is the thing. Right? Uh, and so we trust them. So that has a lot to do with your object or your source. Your source. Um, where is the thing you're trusting at? Uh, is it really trustworthy? So when people ask questions about uh, or when you hear people like Oprah talking about faith, she's not talking about trust in a reliable source. For them, this word, and I'm not quite ready to give it a full definition yet, but it's more like hope in optimism. It's closer to that. So it just means when they say you just got to have faith, they just mean, well, hope it's all going to be better. And then it will be. Because if you have enough faith, it will be. So it's like a blind optimism, um, as opposed to a trust in a particular thing. This is why baptism is such an essential component to Christianity. And we talk about being saved by faith. And we talk about being saved by faith in Jesus. But how do you know you're in Jesus? Because the whole world's in Jesus? Yeah, well, that's true, is preached to the whole world, that all are redeemed in Christ. And yet not all the whole world is, in fact, going to be in Jesus. The difference is who trusts it. And how do you know whether you trust it? And the first mark of that is your baptism into Christ. Uh, the first mark of believing it all is wanting to go to the place where he's promising you. You are mine now, and you will believe forever. That promise in baptism is for your faith, to cling to, so you can look back to it and trust in, not some vacuous idea, but your physical washing with Jesus himself, which the words of baptism give and the water of baptism gives. So, trusting in something, the object of the faith, as opposed to the action of the faith, the faithing or the trusting something, we, we do that all the time. You don't have to try to have faith. You have faith in all sorts of stuff. The question is, what do you have faith in? Yeah. 
I can tell you how to find it if you, if you want to. It's whenever you get scared, the thing you have faith in is being threatened. Uh, whenever you get angry, the thing you have faith in is also probably being threatened. Those are the two human re- uh, reactions to our idols, our faith in something false or that shouldn't have a full faith the way we put it in God. Um, those are our two human reactions to it. Um, so, uh, last month, um, uh, Patreon, which is a way I make uh, income via my podcast from those who want to support it, uh, it something happened where it, I'm trying to remember which one it was, there were two different things and one of them was my fault, but the other one, somehow it didn't charge or wasn't going to charge or look like at the turn of the new year something happened and nothing was able to be, that's what it was. I couldn't post it so it would charge. So I could post my podcast, but it wouldn't hit the charge button. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but 20% of my income comes from this podcast. So I live on this thing to be here. Um, so not having that show up for a month would be challenging for me. Um, and well, there it was, I couldn't charge for it. I'm looking at it. I know I've got a month until I've even got to worry about it. It's probably a glitch in the system. It'll get fixed in a couple of days, but what did I do? I ran around screaming with my hands in the air, pulling my hair out, right? Not quite, but it's what it felt like inside of me. Why? Because I trust in riches, that's why. Because I have faith in my hands and in money, that's why. Because I think that I'm in charge of my life, that's why. Those are bad things to trust in. We do it, we do it. The distinction with the Christian is that that's not the only faith we have. That fleshly, carnal sinful faith, unbelief is what it really is, trust in the wrong things is unbelief in God, that unbelief is what God's spirit by means of his word is fighting against in you, like literally killing it in you by talking not about you so much as about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his actions, his return, the implications, and all these things. Um, And in that regard, learning to find your own misspent faith is valuable because that's the kind of thing we repent of. That's what we do when we come and we say, I've been a, sin, uh, a sinner in thought, word, and deed, right? It's all of that. And it all comes around this word. So you're right. It's not that helpful to just randomly throw out the word because there's just too much in it. So maybe that helps. But even this can get squishy. But now you're pushing me toward what's next, I think. Where'd my eraser go? How's everybody doing? Y'all look kind of uh, ho-hummy this evening, if I might say. Hope I'm not too obtuse. All right, we'll, we'll say that for later. And this doesn't matter for you to remember much right now. I may talk about it more. But I, I mentioned I'm going to try to smuggle the Augsburg Confession in. And this is my attempt to make that an easier phrase to remember. <laughs> not at all. Um, but the lonely path, this is kind of the thing, the lonely path. Um, just ponder that on your own for a week or two. Um, and God's solution. And then UAC, the unaltered Augsburg confession. This is a primary document of our belief about what the Bible says. So the Bible says stuff and we're like, we think it says this. And you can test what we say against what you say based on, this document. Um, it's in our uh, Book of Concord official statement of what we believe. So what I want to do is smuggle 
what that document means into your world without making you memorize the history of the 16th century, although it's pretty interesting, I think. But this is the stuff that we stand on. We talked last time a bit about this word articles, right? And how awkward a phrase it is. And we kind of use the word all the time, but not really to refer to like points of a thesis statement. And we don't really talk about thesis statements unless they make you in like your junior year and then you really can't wait for it to be over, right? So like we just make it sound awful to start with. But by articles of our faith, we mean the stuff we stand on. The stuff we stand on, uh, the power to believe, the things we believe, uh, and why we believe them. And so um, what I've started to do, just for my own head a little bit, but you are my guinea pig class at this point, um, it's, I, I want your feedback and your responses in this, because the goal is to be able to together embrace and speak what we believe comfortably. comfortably. And so I'm looking for language that we can use for talking with outsiders about our faith, about our faith in the triune God, based on the, uh, the main meaning or the substance of the, the Augsburg Confessions list. So we're not going to go into the, that confession itself, but it does list these ideas. The first thing it lists is, what do you believe about God? Um, and they go into, uh, in, in the confession itself, what you believe about God goes into the Trinity more than anything else. It basically talks about Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's important. Um, but I feel like there's a little more going on there that we want to be able to say if we're talking to someone else. Like some guy says, I'm going to plant some trees because I think God is Mother Earth. What do you think, right? What do you say in response to that? How would you say that? You might never get in that conversation. But... My guess is we'd fall back on some jargon. We'd say something about Jesus. We might not be really clear about him. Um, and even though we'd say he's like the Savior or he saved us from our sins or something, I'm not sure we'd set up what that even means. Like, like why would we need saving? You know, most, most Americans strangely think they need to atone for things, and yet the last thing they think they need is to be saved uh, from anything. We're, we're, we're self-made people. So... The parentheses mark here means, I think that's what I want to title this, but I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. In the Augsburg Confession, that would just say God, G-O-D. Um, but I'm calling it the ancient boundaries because when Luther and Melanchthon and the other reformers decided to talk about God to the Roman Catholic Church to try to say, we have not left the Christian faith, what they talked about was the Trinity as, in the ancient church, the only thing they really fought over for the first three or 400 years was to keep that. And so if you come along a 1,000 or 1,500 years later, and you say, you know, I've read the Bible myself, and I'm pretty sure there's no Trinity in it, um, you might be right, I suppose. I don't think you are. But you have effectively said, therefore, the entire ancient church is wrong. They are completely wrong about who God is, and in that way, they're not Christianity at all. So to understand the Trinity as something of a heritage, of a knowledge of God, that the ancient world not only received, I think, in some ways, better than we did, but then defended to the death. Whereas for us today, it's sort of a, 
a ho-hummy thing, right? Oh, the Trinity, yes, of course. We'll sing to the Trinity, but I don't know, right? It's like, a, it's like just an idea we play with. It's an ancient boundary about the hidden supernature of the Creator. Oh, my goodness. Those are big words, too, but you know what those words mean, I think. Supernatural, right? Supernatural, Emma. What is it? You know supernatural. Supernatural. What is it? Come on. You know. I know you know. Anybody? Big and awesome? Well, um, it can be, but not by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You got it. That's like the whole thing right there. Kaboom. Can I, I can't type in here. I'd type in and put the, the thing. Look, at, I can just do this instead of walking around. Um, uh, yeah, so it is, it is nature, but then it's more than nature. It's supernature. So Superman technically would be supernatural to us, although where he came from, you know, they explain it with science. Supernatural would be things you cannot explain with science. Uh, there's a whole fight. If you, any of you grow up and get into physics, there's a whole fight right now about quantum physics versus Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics and which one's right because they don't really seem to line up um, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the propositions, there's just a documentary that came out about this about a week ago. Um, uh, one of the propositions is that the reason why we can't study the subatomic world the way that the normal like gravity world works is because it's playing with a different set of rules, like it's, it's supernatural. Like we can't observe it. It's doing things that we cannot understand possibly as humans. And that, that's actually the proposition, the hypothesis. Um, which is stunning to think about that, that science would come to a point where it actually realizes it can't know everything. Good for them if they do. Um, but what we want to drive home with this is less the supernature of quarks and, and I forget what the other little tiny ones are called. Quarks is one of them. The supernature of the creator himself. So quantum physics is built by the creator into this planet, right? So do you know what, when I say quantum physics? So like, this is made of atoms, right? You know that much? Atoms are small things, right? But then if you go down and look at the atom, like they're so far apart from each other that it's like galaxies apart from each other, like star systems apart from each other, each atom from each other. So there's actually less anything actually here than there is this little tiny speckle of stuff that makes it. And yet, here I am, and, and you know, I'm the same way. And that's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. Uh, how does that work? I don't know. They don't know. But the creator made it. That's not supernatural to him. It's still just natural to him. He himself is supernatural compared to that. So again, take that to this Trinity idea. Like at a certain point, it's like, yeah, I really shouldn't understand God. <laughs> I, I really, it makes sense that I would not understand him. So the, the hidden supernature of the creator, that's the trinity. And then creator implies creation. Yes? So a creator means there's a creation, which I like this word design. Design. Um, there is a movement out there, I know some of you know about it already, called intelligent design. Uh, I think it is one of the best ways to argue about the existence of God as a creator from a non-Christian point of view. So if you're in a conversation and trying to not have to use the Bible to prove your point, Intelligent Design's got a lot of good information about how if you look at the world, 
and study it, it seems like it's not an accident. Stunning thought there, right? But evolution, the whole proposition is, it's an accident, the whole thing. So the design exists. There's order. You can see it, no matter what. I don't know if I put, uh, let's put it there. So the design is designed. This, this thing that is order doesn't exist by itself, but has a designer. So just a, kind of a good way to, to remember that, that all buildings have a builder. If you're out in the woods and you're walking along and you find a fern, you're going to say, hey, look, nature. That was, that is, is, it grew there. It's part of this environment. And if you're an evolutionist, you would say it was on accident. And if you're a creationist, you would say God made it that way long ago and it reproduces. But if you came across a pocket watch, you would not say nature made this, nor would you say God designed this long ago and it reproduces. And, and since here, you would say somebody built that. You would know immediately the difference between something that's been designed and something that has been just put into nature. What's amazing is that when we study nature itself, we find the same thing. It's more interconnectedly designed than any of the stuff we built. Our pocket watches are simplicity compared to the inner workings of a single one of your skin cells. And yet we look at that and we go, oh, where'd it come from? Yeah. Oh well, big bang. I don't know. So to see that there is a builder, there's a hidden supernatural being who designed and built this thing we're in, and that design itself, as we kind of touched on with quarks, is in fact supernatural as well to us. So I used supernatural a moment ago to refer to God and not creation. But within creation, there are, maybe I shouldn't use supernatural though, because it is nature. There is spiritual and there is material. We talked about this last week, I think, too. Maybe it was the week before. So the design is spiritual. And in that sense, it is supernatural in that science can't study certain things about it. And they're admitting that gradually with quantum physics. But let's just take the angels for a moment here, right? The angels are created beings, part of the great creation. We don't see them. They are not supposed to talk to you. If they talk to you, you should run away because they're the wrong kind. Um, uh, they, uh, but they're there. They're not. They're in heaven, but that doesn't mean somewhere far away. Uh, they're in heaven, as in they're in the spiritual plane or the supernatural plane of creation itself, as servants of all creation. Uh, so that's important to see too. And how much our current world doesn't believe that. That's a big thing we don't believe is that there's active, intelligent life that we can't see. It's funny, though. My favorite podcasters are fans of aliens. They really want to believe there's ancient life we can't, or uh, supernatural life we can't see. They just think it's on a spaceship somewhere, um, which might, I don't know, aliens, another thing altogether. Um, and then finally, the designer's invisible. We get back to the mystery of the whole thing. Oh, look. Is this it? There it is. Marvelous. I knew that word was somewhere. Um, God's essence is a mystery, even revealed. So we say Trinity because we know the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and we know they're all God, and they're all the same God, yet there's three of them and one essence. We can say that, but we can't know what that means. We can say it because he revealed it. He has as much as said this himself. So we can repeat it, but all we can really do is marvel at it. Yeah, we, can, we, can, we can ponder it, we can wonder about it, we can bang our heads against it, but at the end of the day, it is, it is marvelous 
Um, so, hidden supernature, marvelous, but designed what we can see. It has order, and some of it ordered. We actually can't see either, and it's here as well, and, and it's for our good. We could even dovetail from that into the spiritual nature of our flesh as humans, but we did that already last week, and Peter's got a lot of paper and his hand up. What's up? Possible. Well, that's not bad. If you ever were to see one, I don't expect you to see one. But if you did, I would certainly say, you know, in whose name do you come? Uh, and um, why on earth are you breaking the very evident end of prophecy to show up now in my little life? That seems weird and very narcissistic of me. I'm probably crazy. That's kind of where I would go, I think, on that. <laughs> yeah. No. No. But, I mean... I would get into a theological debate with the angel, is what I would do. But that's not, I'm not you. Um, so, yeah. Well, good. So, I mean, the angel of the Lord, when he shows up, will tell you he is the angel of the Lord. Um, and then he will not tell you anything that is different than what has already been revealed in Scripture. And all of these visions that we get from all corners of religions, whether it's one guy with golden tablets and a pop in a top hat that you can't find, um, Mormons, uh, or whether it's some Hindu guy on a mountaintop speaking with the various spirits of the mountain, uh, in each of these cases, it's not just that it's not authorized by God. They're going to say things that are the opposite of what God has already said. And so that's, again, where the sniff test on Scripture can be very helpful. If you know your Scriptures, you're going to be like, that smells wrong. Um, so, yeah. All right. I was going to say something else. Oh, yeah. So, who did he see? I don't know that we can say for certain Muhammad saw a demon. I really don't know. Um, he could have just been a really interesting dude. Uh, I don't want to use the word crazy necessarily, but um, way out there. It would seem that he had seizures of some kind. Some, some bits of history uh, say that he had seizures, and uh, that was connected to the trances. I haven't studied it that deeply. Um, what I find more like fascinating about Muhammad is that he was married to a Gnostic that is a heretic Christian. So he had some knowledge of Christianity through a branched off and rejected form of anti-Nicene teaching. So anti-Jesus is God teaching. And that's the culture he's connected to. So a lot of the things that he says about Jesus in the Quran are likely from that train rather than from the actual scriptures. And that's why when you compare them, you see these really weird things where there's like, I mean, he, he teaches that Jesus was a real man, that he was a prophet, that he went to the Jews, um, that he was going to be crucified. Um, so you have those things. But then you have these other really kind of strange things like, um, first, he didn't get crucified. Ju Judas did. God switched Judas in so that he died instead of Jesus. Exactly what the devil would want you to think in, in my mind. Um, and, uh, oh, I lost the other one. Um, oh, well, the, so that Muhammad 
is not sinless, but Jesus was sinless. Muhammad is the real prophet, though, the final one, and Jesus is not, so you have to listen to Muhammad. But at the end of time, it will be Jesus who comes back and takes over the judgment. Weird kind of combinations, right? These are, these are fascinating little blips, and I see that not so much as coming from some demon telling him that as just a really twisted form of heresy that then became its own thing at some point, um, for what it's worth. Yes? Um, I think that Muhammad just had a crazy imagination. Yeah, well, the only thing I would encourage you on that one, and Peter, you did it too, is to avoid calling people of other religions crazy in their religion, particularly if they tend to put death threats on you when you do those kinds of things, which I'm half joking and I'm half not. That is kind of the response. Uh, uh, last week, I sent out a newsletter every week. Last week, it linked to a Instagram of a 16-year-old lesbian French high school student and her two-minute video in which she said, Islam is terrible, 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 and here's the reasons why, and it's terrible. And she had to stop going to school. She was receiving death threats. There were people staying outside the school looking for her. Um, you know, stuff from across, not in her own country, like death threats from across the world from radical Islam. So, is that good? No. Should we submit to it? Not really. But do we want to walk into it stupidly? Not really that either, right? So just remember, in this classroom is going on the internet. And I'm the only one with a face on it, so they don't know it was you that called them crazy. But I would say, if we really want to engage the Muslim, the faithful Muslim, then we cannot start by saying, you're crazy. We start by saying, again, what do you believe? And knowing enough about what we believe to find out where the fear is. What's he afraid of? What's he trying to fix? Where's his sin? And then, through that, moving our way toward... Looks like we're going to lose this sooner than later. Moving our way toward a proclamation of what we know. And interestingly, us and the Muslims would agree on everything about the design until we get to the Trinity. They would disagree right there. Yeah. Um, what they would not have the same view of, and we're almost done, but I want to drop this word out here. because I think I'm still struggling as what to call this one, but Article 2, I've started saying this without realizing it now. So normally, Article 2 is on sin. And I keep trying, you know, I've, I've tried critical wickedness a few times, but the more I think about the phrase, the animal nature of man, um, the more I think it really sums up sin. Like, like, we all like to think that we're thinking through all our decisions and that uh, we're, we're reasonable people and we're always acting in a general best interest kind of thing. Like that's our assumption about ourselves. And it's just not true. Uh, psychologists and science is finding this now when they study our motivations and what we say about what we would do or wouldn't do, and then we're given the choice to actually do it in real life and or after the fact to explain our actions versus why we would have, what we said we wanted to do and how quickly we'll change our, uh, our understanding. Uh, We'll change our justifications to keep ourselves on the good side. Um, and that's in spite of that we have this like instinctual, yeah, it's instinct. Ooh, there we go. Instinctual wickedness. So you think about, we, you know, my, my kids finally strong-armed me and my wife into getting a, a rat 
that they tell me it's a guinea pig, but it's, it's a furry and cute rat, which is better than a furry and not cute rat. Yeah, we're agreed on that. Um, and this little thing is really cute. It is cute. And it eats its food, and it goes around and poops everywhere, and it's great. It's furry. When I, my desk sits about four feet away from the guinea pig's cage, uh, and it's like, it's, in, it's like a hutch. It's in the house. And I was sitting there last night, and at least three times, I just turned my chair. I didn't make noise. I wasn't flinging. I just turned my chair, and I heard that thing run like it was going to die. You could hear it scatter to its deepest corner of its, of its thing. It was sure something was coming from it, for it. Now, the guinea pig didn't sit there and think that through. You know, I heard a noise. And I'm not sure if it's that big guy that walks around loud sometimes or if it's the friendly ones that feed me, but I'm running anyway, right? Like, he didn't think through that. He just did, right? He just, he just responded in pure instinct. And somehow we've convinced ourselves we don't have any of that. And I think the article on original sin is exactly that we do have that. We have a, an instinctual wickedness. The, the Middle Ages, they would call it the carnal nature. We don't really use that word anymore either. It means like meat or flesh. But carnality is, is a, a way of describing how animal in our minds we can be. Uh, and certainly has implications for sexual immorality as well. So to... I, I still keep wrestling with this, but listen in the sermon on Sunday. Listen in Bible study on Sunday and see, you know, do I start saying knowing God? Do I start saying carnal nature or animal nature of man? And as I say it, see if you're not quick on the uptake. See if you can't start building that as your own phrases for just talking about what you experience with your own faith in the Word of God. Um, as you look at your own sin, now, here I am, this human body that's an animal that is also spiritual and set apart and part of the head of the world by means of Adam and Christ. And yet still, you know, I, you know, all of my flesh is, is connected to my mind. And then in that, there are things that I just do because my flesh does them for me. I breathe. I know for the most part when I need to go to the bathroom. I sleep. I don't have a choice. i got to go to sleep eventually. All those things are there. And to see that your sin, your, your instinctual wickedness, is on the same level. It's not a single set of things you did that were right or wrong. It is this undergirded skew or bend you've got toward giving in to the animal for the sake of pleasure and survival. And so the animal nature of man has faith in anything which gives pleasure and survival. And the, the redeemed or renewed nature of man in Christ has faith not in those things, right? Has trust in a different world, a new world, a resurrected world, uh, all in this, this one guy who's so different, it doesn't even seem like it fits to talk about it next. But that's, that's the alternative. That's the other answer. Um, so I think we should probably quit for the evening, but we got, we got through a lot of stuff there. Unless there's any questions that just cannot wait, I guess I could ask Joe why he's been trying to distract me all night with his hockey mask. What is that? Is that paintball mask or the, the BB mask? What is it? To murder people? You're trying to get confirmed in two months, and you're planning murders. <laughs> Dear heavens. Have you asked your mother if you can kill people yet? No. No.
So Rebecca, make sure you have a little talk with Joe about murder. Let him know it's not allowed. Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Probably not. I don't think I'm nearly as big, nor do I live in France. France has had a lot more infiltration of Islamic law in the last two decades than we have. Um, and, uh, but if it fell into the hands of the wrong people, it could. Um, I don't know. Adam Francisco. Yeah. Francisco. Perhaps. I don't know. He's not super public, strangely enough. I think in some of his interviews, he's. Has he said? He's yeah. About it, yeah. So I don't know that. Does he have a book? He's, he's published in books. Yeah. He's a prophet at Concordia University, Irvine. Uh, he is one of the world's, not just LCMS, he is one of the world's leading non-Arabic Islamic scholars. So he's a white male Islamic scholar and, and travels in the highest levels of world scholarship on Islam. Very intelligent guy, very understandable guy. He'd be great to have out here sometime. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I would imagine because he calls it what it is. Less worried about it? Worried about fatwas. Yeah, yeah. Can... Come and take them. Yeah. So, um, so is this from his no, he is a Lutheran. Yeah, he teaches at Concordia University in Irvine. He's a Lutheran. He's not a pastor. His brother's a pastor. Um, but if you ever hear his name or if you like Issues Etc., you go, you want to learn some good Islam stuff? Go to issuesetc.org, put in Adam Francisco's name, and you'll have at least five to ten great interviews on understanding Islam as an American. Um, balanced, balanced, right? You really want to understand that most of them are not living in some sort of extreme, hardcore religious life. Most of them are like the Catholics you know. Right? They're just kind of doing it and floating in it and celebrating and having families and trying to get rich. Um, and that's not necessarily good, but those people are not out to kill us, nor do we want to go at them as if they have to just be completely and utterly wiped away in what they believe. Um, instead, they should be gone at as humans who are animal nature, instinctively wicked, and in need of knowledge of the true God which we have. And that knowledge comes in mercy, forgiveness, that kind of thing. We want to demonstrate that to them. Uh, gentleness. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Right. Right. They can be. They can be. So, like in Germany, where there's been a lot of immigration, some of the Lutheran churches there have experienced significant growth from Muslims who are converting. Uh, having spoken to and heard from some of them, it's a mixed bag. Some of it's a cultural thing. Some of it's about acceptance in a new land and just trying to break out, you know, so, but to be sure, uh, everybody is starving. Everybody's starving. They just don't think they are. Uh, but we don't convince them they're starving by not giving them real food and insisting that they learn how to cook for themselves so they can come get it from us later. And that's sort of my, my itch right now. And you know what? Please do not let me badger you too much. Um, I'm on a, on, a, on a personal intellectual ride with my faith 
trying to understand how I talk to people in this city for you and how I talk to you as well. And I want you on the journey. So I'm not asking you to become me or to become some sort of outgoing door-to-door salesman for Jesus or anything like that. But I want us to be of one mind. And I want us to have words we know uh, that tell what we believe to ourselves and to each other. I don't want to get rid of the old ones, but I do want to, I want to be able to use them interchangeably and not really miss a beat on it. So, yeah.